It is Wednesday, February 28th, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. My name is Stephen Cox. I'm your host. Hello. On this week's show, David Frum. He is the editor of The Atlantic Magazine, and he joins us to talk about his new book, Trumpocracy. What he does have is a will to dominance, unlike any president ever seen. Next, Rita Bosworth. She is founder and CEO of Sister District, and she joins us to talk about the many reasons it's the mission of her organization to help flip state houses blue. Even though we are winning elections and winning chambers and winning states by net number of votes, we're not winning the electoral power because in this very screwed up system, the party in power gets to draw the lines. Also, following last week's discussion with Shannon Watts, we speak with Laura Latta. She is co-lead of the Washington chapter of Moms Demand Action to hear about the incredible growth of her group since the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. That and we'll have essays on gun violence in our schools from two Tacoma area teens. That's all coming up. So stay with us. David Frum is a former speechwriter for George W. Bush and is currently the editor of The Atlantic, as well as being a frequent contributor to MSNBC. His latest book is Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic, and we are very happy that it has brought him on the show. David Frum, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. So, look, because the gun issue is so front and center to uh, our national discussion right now, I'd like to begin by talking briefly about a video that you did on The Atlantic's website uh, about how gun rights people in this country are not behaving like responsible adults around the issue of guns. Um, in fact, you, uh, you say they're behaving like hippies. <laughs> um, so uh, d- tell us what you mean by that. I mean that with rights come responsibilities, um, the right to carry a weapon that can end human life. Uh, and not just one, but on a large scale, um, is, a, is a very serious uh, charge. And people who undertake it should answer for it with some unwillingness to accept responsibilities to others. Like, for example, a vision test. How about that? You should be able to demonstrate that you can see your target. Um, some, um, requir- some requirement of a showing of skill and good character. I'm speaking to you right now from Toronto, Canada. Uh, gun ownership is quite widespread uh, in Canada. I live in the summer in a rural part of Canada where I would say almost all of my neighbors own either a rifle or a shotgun. But in order to get the license for those weapons, and you do have to have a license as you do for a boat or a car, you must affirmatively demonstrate good character to the authorities, um, including, by the way, um, the testimony of your current spouse or recent ex-spouses uh, that you are someone who doesn't intend to do violence against them. Um, those, those are sort of what one would think are pretty basic requirements, and yet any suggestion that, that um, anything should impinge on the gun owner is, re- is rejected in the United States. And instead, American children, the NRA says, should go to school behind in prison-like compounds mm. with uh, fortified with fencing and, no, and windowless walls rather than in even the slightest way uh, limiting the total freedom of action of gun owners. You know, of course, uh, I agree with everything that you're saying, and I am fairly confident that my listeners do as well. But you can hear the argument, of course, from gun rights uh, advocates who would say in Canada, the right to own guns is not enshrined in the Bill of Rights. And of course, the Second Amendment can be read a number of different ways. Um, but how, how do you how would how do you respond to that? Well, first, um, the right to own guns is enshrined in the Constitution of Canada. Um, I was not aware of that. Okay, then I stand corrected. No, no, but but this is a complicated thing. The Canadian Canadian Constitution is not just the single written document, the Constitution Act of 1982. Canada also incorporates into its Constitution the entire heritage of the British constitutional law, um, which includes the 1689 Declaration of Rights, from uh, which is the original statement of the right of the citizens to bear arms. And uh, the U.S. Second Amendment is, is a restatement of the, 19, of the 1689 uh, statement about the, the right to bear arms. So it, it, it rank, it's in the consciousness of all the English-speaking people that gun ownership is, you know, is a liberty. Um, but the Second Amendment, because the Second Amendment was interpreted in the United States for a long time in light of this British tradition in which it's an important liberty, but it's a liberty that's got some bounds, um, including that it is connected to this idea that you're not just owning the guns so that you can be a bandit. You're owning the guns so that you can take part in a militia. Right. Uh, and when, when I hear people um, say things like, the reason I need my guns is in order to resist the authorities, 
So that's not the spirit of, of these laws. And it, it's also, by the way, a total delusion. I, as, well, I have, a, as we all do, relatives who have this mindset and uh, who say, you know, I'm here. I need my weapons. I can resist the authorities. And, and I tell him, uh, look, I pay a lot of taxes, so you won't last nine seconds. <laughs> I have the exact same thought when I hear that. I don't think that no matter what your cache of AR-15s, I don't think it's going to stand up very well to, say, a B-1 bomber. I don't think you've got much of a chance there. If it lasts more than nine seconds, I'd pay more taxes. <laughs> well, th- we could actually spend uh, the rest of our allotted time talking about this, but uh, I have brought you on with the purpose of talking about your book, and your book is about uh, Trump. And I, I guess a, a place that I would like to start is – uh, sort of looking at this from a year remove, we are just over a year, 13 months into Trump. Um, what are your thoughts at the one-year mark? You called on Trump to resign in May of 2017, so I'm guessing that you're you're even less sanguine now. Yeah, so um, the, the corruption is more flagrant um, than I expected. And the corruption is so flagrant that you almost wonder whether it hasn't become counterproductive for him because, you know, uh, making the taxpayer pay for golf carts at your resort so the Secret Service can cost, that's something people can really grasp. And those are not huge, unimaginable sums. They're in tens of thousands of dollars. And I think they rank, they rankle and resonate with, with voters. Uh, he would be better off letting the Secret Service, you know, have the golf cart, the golf cart for free, and then making his money up in other ways. But the, so the corruption is, is more flagrant. What um, I did not ex- quite expect was that his own personal psychological neediness would be such an impediment to him. Uh, he would be in a much stronger position if he had a little bit more fortitude and a little bit more ability to keep his mouth shut. But there's no question the institutions of the country are rocking. Um, and right now we are seeing just one example, the um, Republican Party rallying around this idea that the president has a right to fire the head of the FBI at any time, for any reason, including investigation of the president himself. You know, every developed country has an equivalent of the FBI. Every developed country has a head of law enforcement. And in no developed country uh, does the head of government assert the right to direct the, the state police in their actions. Even in the United States, um, the last time the, the head of the FBI was fired back in the 1990s by President Clinton, um, it was for cause, an accusation, a credible one of misuse of expenses. There was an investigation. There was notice and an opportunity for the head of the FBI to defend himself in public. There, were, there was a reference to Congress. There wasn't a formal process because Congress doesn't do this, but members of Congress were involved and informed and gave their consent. And, and the principle was established that firing the head of the FBI must be done for cause and with broad agreement among office holders that there was, the cause was true. President Trump is asserting a whole new theory of what the relationship is between the president and the state police and the Republican Party is backing him up. If he prevails, uh, we are going to have a completely politicized police force in the United States. Which is a chilling thought. Um, And, you know, you you mentioned his undisciplined nature and how he might be even more effective if he were a little more on message, which is also a, a frightening thought. But it sort of gets to, I think, one of the central questions of your book, which is, He's not a strategic thinker. He is impulsive. And these are generally not the sorts of people who consolidate power the way that he has. Um, And you say uh, in your book that his talent is in spotting and exploiting weaknesses or pain points. So talk about that. Well, your point about not – you're exactly right when you say he's not strategic. He's not even that tactical. But what he does have is a will to dominance, unlike – any president ever seen. And you see strong people bend and yield to him. Um, you, you see it in the H.R. McMasters. You see it in the John Kellys. Yeah. Uh, these are formidable personalities, but they yield. And part of what happens is um, he takes hostage something that is precious to these men. I mean, McMaster and Kelly are really, they've, they've given their lives to the service of the United States. They've worn the uniform. John Kelly gave a son. Um, they care about America and he, they understand that left to his own devices, he will damage America. So they end up becoming his enablers in, um, and 
then they go beyond that because in order to sort of you can't live with that thought about yourself, they end up then becoming his supporters and his justifiers as well. Which is frightening to think about the way that that plays out. And, you know, that that sort of gets into Congress as well. And, and so you talk about how the people enabling Trump, I think, who may be doing the most damage and who deserve most of the blame is the GOP Congress. I don't think that McConnell and Ryan started out their political careers saying that their ultimate plan was to get behind an autocrat. Are there reasons for supporting Trump different fundamentally from, say, H.R. McMaster, John Kelly, uh, James Mattis, the so-called adults in the room? Um, Mattis is in a somewhat different position from Kelly and McMaster because they work directly for the president inside the White House system. Mattis is across the river in the Pentagon at the head of the um, largest and most powerful bureaucracy on earth. And Mattis has responded to Trump, not by bending to him, but in another way that's also dangerous, which is by making the military more independent of the president. Talk about that a little bit. How do you mean? Well, let me give you an example of this, that um, right now, one of the most important decisions in front of the president is whether to impose tariffs on steel in a way in a way that will launch a trade war, um, not only with China, but with Germany and Canada as well. The Pentagon has been concerned about relationships with those, with those allies, has been issuing policy papers, arguing against, that every time the, the Department of Commerce says this is an important matter of national security, the Pen- Pentagon is saying, no, it's not. Well, the Pentagon's right, and Mattis is a more honorable and effective leader um, than the president of the United States. And I, I think probably everybody listening to this program wishes that James Mattis were president right now, mm. or would prefer James Mattis. But the fact is, that's not his job. Um, it is not the job of the military to make policy for the civilians. It's not the job of the Secretary of Defense to veto the actions of the president as a kind of super president. In institutional self-defense, the military is taking on a role that is you know, as welcome as people may find it in the immediate term, has long-term dangerous consequences. The military, the security services, and I come from the national security tradition. I, I'm a big believer and defender of those agencies. But it's just they always want to escape civilian control and supervision if they can. Um, and they're doing so. Let me just before I go to the Republican Congress, one more point um, about what the, the damage that is being done. The escapades of the clownish Devin Nunes of the House Intelligence Committee are damaging not just in the immediate term, but the CIA and the FBI have never liked reporting to Congress. They think it's leaky. Uh, they think people they grandstand. You know, Congress is always that when things go well, Congress always takes the credit. When things go badly, they didn't know anything. Um, and so they hate it. It took a lot of work in the middle 1970s to build these committees and to give them credit so that the intelligence agencies would share with them what they were up to. And right. for that reason, since their appearance in the middle 70s, these committees have been different. They've been less partisan than other committees of Congress. Um, you know, they have usually had a little bit more selection as to how you get on them. You have to be a finer kind of person or, you know, show demonstrated interest. And the Adam Schiff, the personality we've all seen on TV, that's the way that intelligence committee people usually are. Right. They're very, they're very sober-minded people. That um, When you have this clown, and then the clown not only um, behaves clownishly, but actually then divulges and politicizes intelligence, how eager do you think the CIA and FBI now are to tell that, that committee what they're up to? And that's a problem, not just with the Trump scandals, but down the road, um, we've given a tremendous impetus to those agencies to say, you know what, we never like talking to Congress anyway. Um, anytime anyone tells us to share, we'll remind them of Devin Nunes. Uh, we need more independence and lack of scrutiny, please. And it's a systemic breakdown, and it's something that has uh, long-term consequences. And I, I do want to ask you uh, about some of the long-term consequences down the road past a, uh, a Trump administration, which God willing, we'll, we'll get to. Uh, but just sort of circling back to the question about uh, McConnell and Ryan and the uh, the congressional Republicans, how, how did Trump man- – because it happened very slowly, didn't it? I mean, Trump's early days with McConnell were very rocky. Uh, Paul Ryan had his fits and starts. He, like many uh, people uh, before the election, condemned the Access Hollywood tapes. But now they are fully behind Trump and his agenda. They, they seem to share an agenda in many ways. What happened here? Is it – is it a simple desire for power? Is it that, you know, once you've gone past the point of no return, it, it somehow just gets easier? What's, what's your assessment with the GOP Congress? Well, 
uh, Ryan and McConnell are very different creatures. Um, Ryan is a true believer. McConnell is not. Um, Ryan is content to lose the House to gain a tax cut. Uh, McConnell wants power for its own sake and would make uh, compromises on his policy goals in order to hold on to power. But what they have in common is a discovery that I, I talked before about Donald Trump's will to power and his dominance. But he joins that to almost total indifference to the usual work of government. So you have this very um, sinister but intoxicating possibility with him, if you're, especially if you're a true believer like Ryan, that Trump says, I don't care what the public policy of the United States looks like. I really don't. Paul, over to you. All I care about is dumb, is being protected from my wrongdoing and having my power lust gratified. If you will give me that, I will give you everything else. Um, and uh, it's a form of temptation that those leaders have found difficult to resist. So it's basically one hand washing the other, uh, although in this particular instance, um, both hands and then I guess by extension, the entire country um, becomes dirty. You know, you've argued that congressional Republicans have uh, in many ways abandoned the democratic process through this by aligning themselves with um, a budding autocrat like Trump. Um because it's the only way that they can push through their agenda, which is becoming more and more politically unpopular. Um, in other words, they're moving us away from a representative government. And, and I'm curious in your mind, what is the end game there? Where can this possibly go for the Republican Party? Um, where it can go for the nations is someplace pretty, pretty dark. Uh, people often start walking paths without quite understanding where they're going or what they're doing. Um, they see just what is in front of them and uh, they reach for an increment of power without understanding or without worrying too much about where it's going to go. Um, so in the Trump years, one of the most amazing of all these famous, we were talking about the breaking of norms. One of the most important of the breaking of norms is that we've had two enormous bills pushed through Congress, one successfully, one not taxes successfully, healthcare, not without hearings, uh, without a real understanding of the costs and benefits, um, without proper information, in a way that departs from the legislative traditions of the United States. Um, this isn't autocracy. This is, um, I mean, it's still passed through two houses of Congress, and the committee system isn't in the Constitution, for goodness sakes. But the committee system has historically been part of the way Americans make laws. And um, given uh, the, the many weaknesses of congressional drafting, um, that the committee system is a way that America knows what it's getting before it buys it. And that's been short-circuited. Right. So Republicans are breaking the way Congress governs in order to push through things that would not be able to survive much scrutiny. And what is then happening at the state level is because these laws are so very unpopular, they are selectively shrinking the electorate. One of the ways that you see all around the world that modern authoritarianism departs from the more spectacular authoritarianism of the years between the wars was back then authoritarian leaders wanted to do away with the democratic system entirely. Modern authoritarians don't. I mean, uh, Viktor Orban, even Vladimir Putin um, have elections. Um, and Putin's elections aren't honest, but Orban's, they're not fair, but they're more or less honest. But what you, you can do is by simply manipulating the process, you can get the same results with a lot less squawking than if you abolish the process. And I, I worry that that could be in our future as, as we see state after state, shrink its electorate with a view to making sure that the people who now hold power keep power. Well, one of the things that you talk about that can safeguard that is having a healthy opposition party. You also spoke in a recent video on theatlantic.com about the need to preserve the Republican Party in this in light, of course, of a lot of people calling ultimately for the destruction of the Republican Party for what they've done. And the way that other countries operate in their party systems differs from ours in that they have multi-party systems where you are in, in Canada. Your native Canada um, has a parliamentary system. Um, you know, to that end, uh, Ohio Governor John Kasich said in an interview last week that he thinks that the United States may begin may be beginning to see the end 
of a two-party system here. Uh, I think Duverger would disagree. But, it, you know, it does raise the question. We do have a deep split in both of our parties, roughly breaking down between people like yourself and the Trump faction on the Republican side and then between, say, the progressive and the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Where do you see all of this going with this fracture? You you don't see a multi-party system, I would imagine. I, I, so long as the United States has the Electoral College, the presidency will be a two-way fight. And so long as the presidency is the center of fundraising for every other race in the country, uh, the rest of the country will have a two-way fight. When the United States has seen third parties before, and, and it has, they've usually been focused on a very specific single issue. The United States had a socialist party at one point. Um, it's had greenback parties at various points. It's had temperance parties at various points. But um, it's very rare for anyone to try to get a full-spectrum party off the ground. And the last serious effort to do that, um, uh, which was um, basically to have a – after World War II, um, Henry Wallace, Franklin Roosevelt's former vice president, tried to build a kind of a fully left party. It was destroyed by um, Soviet subversion. Um and I guess I guess there's one other near-term successor, which is George Wallace's attempt. And of course, that then party went into be be a full um, uh, segregationist and racist party that was unacceptable to the country. Um, historically, the way change has happened in the American party system is within parties, not by creating new parties. And we have seen that happen dramatically. Um, you know, the Democratic Party changed in, in the 1970s from being a you know labor uh, party dominated by northern labor, city bosses, and southern segregationists to being, you know, the, the, the modern new politics Democratic Party, had, you know, run by a multi-ethnic party, run by um, educated professionals. And we saw the, concert, the Republicans turn from being a really non-ideological party in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s into a ideal, highly ideological conservative party. And those kinds of changes can happen again. Um, I remain a Republican for... Uh, Two reasons. Um, first, I'm a pretty conservative person. Um, I want to see taxes low, business lightly regulated. And, and second, because I don't think it does a country any good to have one party out of two committed to democratic processes. You need both parties committed to them. And so those of us who believe in democratic methods for conservative goals need to stick to the Republican Party precisely because the democratic methods inside the Republican Party are in so much danger right now. If, if we leave, um, the future of that party gets very grim and with it the future of America. You know, it's, it's funny. I told myself uh, before we began our interview that I was not going to ask you why you remain a conservative, and yet you, uh, you've just answered it. So uh, you've read my mind. Um, you talk – and this is something that I, I think is of, of keen interest to a lot of listeners. And this, this is an idea that you talk about in your book of the degrees of democracy. You say that democracy is not binary, that there are degrees that it can be empowered or diminished. And you, you sort of liken it to like a knob or a thermostat. And I guess I would ask you in your estimation, where are we right now on that knob or dial or spectrum? We're definitely turning the knob down. Um, we are empowering highly engaged, highly ideological minorities. Um, we are disenfranchising um, chunks of the population. Uh, university students are a special target of disenfranchisement. Everything is being done to make it difficult for them to participate in, in politics. But how do you mean about uh, university students being disenfranchised? Um, more and more states have added voter ID. Nothing intrinsically so terrible about that. But in the, the biggest state with the voter ID law, Texas, will accept a carry permit as a voter ID, but it will not accept an identity card from the state university system. And those uh, university cards at the University of Texas are just as issued by the state as the gun carry permits are, um, but they're not voter ID. Uh, and you see that things like that happening, in st that, that is true in Wisconsin as well, that a university card does not prove your residency inside the state in order right. to carry and so ultimately, you're saying because of voter ID laws that it's becoming more and more difficult for students to vote and students tend to vote uh, much more on the progressive side of things. They tend to. And so that sort of gets to uh, a larger question, which may be a little bit of a side issue to your book, but the way in which 
Republicans seem to be hanging on to power is through things like this, um, through you know voter suppression, through uh, extreme cases of gerrymandering. One wonders if there is this sense among the prevailing Republicans right now that given the demographics in this country, this might be one of the very last times that we see a fully male uh, Republican-led government in this country and that the only way that they can hang on to this power is through these sorts of machinations. And I, I'm wondering what you, what you make of that idea. Well, that idea is, is very strong. I think it's completely false, but Republicans have talked themselves into it. One of the um, tendencies of, of the conservative mind is a tendency toward apocalyptic thinking. Hmm. Um, you know, you know, this is it. It's, you know, the politics, will, we're at the tipping point, as Paul Ryan said in the 2010 speech, and if we don't get our way now, that's it. Politics is over. And I always try to reassure Republicans, politics is never over. Never over. Um, and uh, there, there is always something to be done. Um, I, I will note, for example, one of the things Paul Ryan said is if the United States ever got a universal health system, uh, that, that would be it for republicanism and conservatism. The country would plunge into socialism. The single winningest party in the democratic world, the most consistently successful, is the British Conservative Party. Sell power for more out of the past hundred years than any democratic party ever. Um, and it has done that not only despite the fact that Britain has um, a national health system, but in, I would argue in large part because of it, because they took away one of the biggest concerns that ordinary people had about their future. They enabled ordinary people to vote conservative in all kinds of ways and for all kinds of other issues. Um, you know, Canada has a universal health system. The Con Canadian Conservative Party is not as successful as the British Conservative Party, but it's held you know, power for a good quarter of the period since World War II. The Australian Liberals, despite their name, a conservative party, um, have been very successful in Australia. Um, the German Christian Democrats, they're in power almost all of the time. <laughs> I mean, they're not as conservative as, the, as those other parties are. So it, but the other thing to bear in mind is um, this idea that a lot of people on the left have, uh, which is, um, boy, just as soon as America gets an, um, you know, enough new immigrants, that's it, the jigs up for Republicans, politics never ends. What the Democrats are going to discover is that the various component parts of their coalition have frictions and rivalries and disagreements. Um, and I think they're uh, discovering that already. I think they know that now. Yeah. And many of them are going to be open to new kinds of appeals. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, and you can see this in the politics of, you know, the, the West Coast states. It is, it is, I mean, one of the really mo um, most urgent tasks for the stability of the country and the good governance of the country is to rebuild the um, Republican Party in California. And I think that can be done by just finding in who are the people in the Democratic Party who are dissatisfied with the drift of the party and pulling in, them into new kinds of coalitions. It ne politics never ends. The it never ends unless in despair people give up on politics and try to use force instead. Yeah. And so we are on a continuum, uh, one that we are hoping to sustain without violence, as you say. Uh, and, you know, in that vein, you've talked about being able to look back on this part of the continuum, this period in history, and about how there will be a time in the future when we assess what is happening right now. So fast forward 10 years from now, what do you hope to write about this period in our nation's history? Um, what I would hope is... Um that after a lot of uncertainty in 2017 and 2018, uh, the institutions did hold, and not just the institutions summed up by the special counsel's office, but also that Congress reasserted its oversight, either because there was a change of heart or a change of party, um, and uh, corruption was curtailed, um, and uh, that the Trump um, administration was replaced decisively. Um, and that Americans came out of this experience with a new approach to politics. Um, one that, for example, took seriously the grievances and discontents that led to the rise of Trump. Um, I would hope we would see a, a strong national commitment to dealing with drug abuse. Hmm. Um, I would hope we would see, um, you know, real concern for the economic well-being of uh, the parts of America that are not doing so well, the rural parts, the middle of the country. Um, the non-college graduates, the people who don't live in knowledge centers, um, I would hope we would um, see a renewed commitment to national defense, not only 
um, the material defense provided by the Army, the Navy, and the Coast Guard and Air Force, uh, but also um, defenses against subversion, that we need, um, you know, we've learned that attacks on America come not only in the form of tanks and rockets, but also through um, clandestine means, um, through political manipulation. We need to harden the country that way. Um, I, I hope, and this may sound sappy, but I think one of the things that Donald Trump reminds us of is that cruelty can be exciting and stimulating. People get energized by it. But that it can also be sufficiently ugly and revolting that to call people to um, a more conscious kind of politics. And that one of the things that I, I, I what's well, one of the question marks about something that I think is the, the gun movement right now and the Me Too movement that we see, if those become ideological movements, I think they will end up doing more um, harm than good. But if, and especially Me Too, if it becomes a call to just a more kindly approach to every interaction we have, both political and non-political, um, you know, I, I called it um, not to some ideological project, but just to dignity and um, decency in the way we treat people. We may come out of this yet a better country. I hope so. Well, that actually gets to something that you said at a panel uh, at Crosscut, the Crosscut Festival in, in yeah. Seattle, uh, where you talked about what we're going through potentially right now as being a, a close call when you're when you're driving, right? I, I, the analogy I keep using is, and I, I'm, I'm certain this is not true of anyone listening to this program, but unfortunately it has happened to me, um, where sometimes I'm on the road and I, I get a little drowsy, and then I, instead of sensibly pulling over, I try to muscle through it, which no one should do, and, and then suddenly see the head beams of an oncoming truck, and you've been driving unsafely, and that, those, they call you back to yourself, and the adrenaline surge you get from realizing how much danger you were in, that's what gets you safely home. And if Donald Trump is that, may do us some good. In, in an ideal world, we will strengthen our institutions and we will we'll write a post-mortem that, that does have us emerging stronger. Uh, so just in closing, um, th- those of us on the grassroots side, as you know, are doing everything we can to stop Trump and the GOP. And I'm wondering, is there a meaningful way that people like us and conservatives, particularly conservatives like you, can work together in common cause? I would thank you. That's a great question and important point. I would point to um, the following three things. The first thing is we all need to remember we are in the age of the smartphone. We are no longer merely consumers of media. We are also producers. Um, if you're carrying a smartphone in your pocket, you command more instantaneous communication power than Walter Cronkite ever had. Hmm. Use that power wisely. Do not retweet or Facebookize things just because they seem funny or exciting. Check everything. Click the link. See where it comes from. Um, it, make your motto, the, fal- the false news stops with me. Uh, and uh, understand how much power you have. Ten, you, know, you may think, well, I, I have a measly 5,000 Facebook friends. What does that mean? But that was, that was the size of the typical small town newspaper two generations ago. <laughs> uh, small town newspaper, I'll just print any old thing. Uh, without, you know, that he, that epitome, you know, think of yourself as an editor and a journalist in your own right. That's the first thing I said. Second thing I would say is, um, especially people on the progressive side, understand that what you're trying to protect is the possibility of difference. I get very angry when I hear people criticizing, for example, a Jeff Flake. So why doesn't he stop Trump's judges? Because that's the part of the Trump program he agrees with. And if you had an authoritarian figure show up on the left-hand side of the spectrum, as has happened in Italy and uh, and, and other countries, um, and Liberals stood up to that left-wing figure and said, I'm a liberal, I believe in socialized medicine, but that doesn't mean I'm in favor of having Stalinists in government. How would it be if people in the Christian Democratic parties in those countries said, well, it's all very well that you're standing up to the five-star movement, but why don't you sign up to our agenda to privatize the highways? I'm opposing this person on the left as a liberal, not as you. And the same should be true in your understanding of people like Jeff Flake. And and the the last thing... um, I would say, and I think this is a real lesson because I imagine many of your listeners are um, Bernie Sanders fans. Beware of messianic politics. Beware of saviors. The democratic system is about the system. Um, And the impulse to look for some hero who can make everything different is actually subversive of the system itself. Um, One of the great 
leaders of the American left, Eugene Victor Debs, used to say, and he was a very charismatic man himself and to many a savior figure, but he used to say, I would not lead you to the promised land if I could, because if I could lead you in, somebody else could lead you out. Beware, don't look for saviors, look for committees. Well, the book is called Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. And David Frum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So last week, a piece by Greg Sargent in The Washington Post entitled Angry About Trump and Gun Violence, Do This Now Democrats, said that the best way that we on the left can channel our anger is to focus on races at the state level. And so joining us to talk about that is Rita Bosworth. She is the founder and executive director of Sister District, a group dedicated to flipping states blue. Rita Bosworth, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So longtime listeners to the show have heard me talk about this often about why Democrats taking state capitals and governorships back from the Republicans is just so important, uh, but it absolutely bears repeating. And so I would love for you to make the case. Why are state level races so important for the Democrats right now? Yeah. um, You know, in my opinion, they they are the most important thing. And there's a long history here about why states matter. Um, One thing to know, of course, is that uh, what happens in the states is what actually affects the people. State legislatures are the entities that are making laws about voting rights and gun rights and environmental protections and Medicaid expansion. These are issues that are being regulated at the state level. And so as much as we hear about Congress doing or not doing anything about these big issues, the real action is happening in the states. And that's one of the big reasons why we need to turn our states blue because we need to help all of our citizens and our people in in the states across the country. Another reason is that states are a um, are where we train good candidates for national office. Uh, over the past 10 years, Democrats lost almost 1,000 seats in state legislatures. And that hurt us not only because a lot of these chambers are red and we're not getting good legislation, but because we don't have a good pipeline of candidates that can get trained at the state level and then become good national candidates. Barack Obama was a state senator and he became president. This is a really important thing that we need to focus on for our future. And then the third big reason that states are important, of course, is that states control redistricting. States decide how to draw the districts for both the state legislatures and for Congress. And so I will be the first one to say that I want to flip Congress as much as every other Democrat in this country. But we will not flip Congress in a long-term and sustained manner unless we flip the states. Because right now, the Republicans control 26 trifecta states. A trifecta state is where one party controls the governorship and both states, uh, both state chambers. Out of 50 states, they have 26 trifecta states, which means they have unilateral power, not only over the legislation, but over how to draw the district lines. And that's why we see so many instances where Democrats can vote in a majority and still not get a majority of power because the Republicans have drawn the districts to favor themselves. And so in order to win back Congress in a long-term and sustained way, we have to win back the state houses so that we can get fairer lines. And that is not only going to help us get control in the states, but it's also going to help us get control in Congress. Right. And it will ultimately return us to actually being a, uh, a representative democracy, because as you say, exactly, we have the majority of voters ultimately in most nationwide and even statewide elections. And yet uh, and a thousand seats. I had not heard that number before. And that is just kind of bone chilling. Wow. And also, of course, there is the specter of the GOP being able to call a constitutional convention if they get a quorum of enough states, right? That's correct. Right now, they are just two states away from being able to call a constitutional convention. And I should say, the Republicans have 26 trifecta states. The Democrats only have eight. Hmm. We're a majority of the country. We won the popular vote in 2016 by three million votes. But the disparity in power in the states is really striking. And of course, this goes back um, to when Barack Obama was elected and the Republicans were very, very smart because they invested in states. 
they put about $30 million into winning back state houses. And one by one, they flipped those chambers. They drew the lines to favor themselves. And by the time the Democrats realized what was happening, we don't have the power in the states. We don't have the power to draw the lines. And even though we are winning elections and winning chambers and winning states by, by net number of votes, we're not winning the electoral power because, you know, in this very screwed up system, the party in power gets to draw the lines. Uh, nothing about that is fair, but that's what's happening. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what we're up against. Um, you know, you talk about how uh, presidential and Senate races tend to get far more of the attention. And it was actually the Senate race in California in 2016 that was the thing that inspired you to start Sister District, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So uh, in case people don't know, I I have not worked in politics or campaigns. I'm actually an attorney. And I was a public defender for 12 years. That was my career. And I was perfectly happy in that career. And the 2016 election happened. And I was paralyzed, like many people, and living in California in particular, because we have a supermajority of Democrats in our state legislature. And we were choosing between two Democrats for our open Senate seat because we have an open primary system. And so here we were in California. No matter what, we were going to send a Democrat to the Senate. And, you know, the rest of the country really (laughs) went the opposite way, which is just hard for us to comprehend sometimes. But what I realized was that in choosing which Democrat we were going to send to the Senate, we spent $20 million on that race. Now, I recognize there are differences between Democrats. I'm not blind to that. But the reality is that no matter what, we were going to have somebody with a D in Washington and they were going to vote the way the D's needed to vote on the important issues. But $20 million was spent on that race. And so I just thought to myself, look, what if we spent $20 million instead on races across the country where that were close and the Democratic candidate needed a boost? We really need to start thinking strategically as Democrats about how are we going to win back electoral power that matters for Democrats and do it in a way that is long-term and sustained. And we don't get there by putting all of our money behind, you know, races that are between Democrat and Democrat or races that don't have a lot of electoral significance. And one example that I can think of is the John Ossoff race in Georgia um, in the summer of last year, where he was running in a in a red district and a Trump district. And arguably, you know, it, it was very hard for him to win that race. But $32 million was spent on John Ossoff's race to try to get him elected. $32 million. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, you know, if our hopes had come true and he had won, what would that really mean? That would mean that we would have one more seat out of 435 in Congress. That one seat was not going to flip the chamber. It was not going to give us, you know, the votes that we needed to stop the repeal of Obamacare or stop the tax bill. Um, like that's actually not an electorally significant seat and $32 million was spent on it. Now, if we had spent $32 million instead on trying to win uh, the House of Delegates in Virginia, we'd probably have it by now. And that would be much more significant because then we'd be able to redistrict in Virginia. We'd just get congressional seats when we had fair redistricting and we wouldn't have to spend $32 million on one seat that actually didn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, speaking of Virginia, it really was one of the most prominent state level victories uh, for Democrats. And you played a big part in that. Um, Democrats won the governorship. They won the lieutenant governorship. They won uh, 16 to 17 races for the House delegates. And and yeah, I mean, it's the control of it actually came down to a coin flip, which is kind of mind boggling that that's how we would determine it here in 2018. But here we are. Um, You actually have a video on your site of some of the more prominent winners in Virginia giving Sister District personal shout outs for their victories, including Danica Rome, the first transgender woman uh, to uh, be elected to the House of Delegates there. So talk specifically about the work Sister District did in the Virginia election. Yeah, Virginia was was just an unbelievable victory. And it was a real testament, I think, to uh, what what the power of the grassroots really is. And so, of course, you know, Virginia is a is a state that for many, you know, by many accounts is a blue state. They've gone for the Democratic presidential candidate the last three election cycles. They went Obama, Obama, Clinton. Um, They, uh, even though statewide they elect Democrats, 
um, only 34 of their 100 representatives in the House of Delegates were Democrats. And so there's this real disparity between what the state votes and how they're represented in their own House of Delegates. And of course, that gets right back to what you were talking about earlier. Exactly. It gets right back to the gerrymandering. Republicans are in control of the state house. They drew the lines to favor themselves. And again, it's not only that Republicans had 66 of 100 seats in the House of Delegates. They also control seven of 11 seats in Congress, because remember, the states control districting for congressional seats as well. And so you have a state that's going for the Democratic presidential candidate, but it only has four, you know, Democrats only have four out of 11 seats in Congress. That is why that that is the crux of the importance of these of these state houses. And so it was a really tall order, you know, to try to go in and flip the House of Delegates. We had to flip 17 seats. And what we do at Sister District is we, uh, on the one hand, we organize volunteers. So when you sign up through our website, you, you sign up with your email and your zip code. And your zip code allows us to put you into your team that is in your own community. And then the, the action goes from online to offline. Because once you're in your team, you start meeting in person. And you're meeting with the folks where you live who care about these issues as much as you do. You are organizing. You are mobilizing. And this, I think, is really key to winning any elections, is, is it can't be done online. It has to be done person to person. So that's what we are fostering, is these groups of civic engagement. And then at the same time, we at headquarters are identifying state legislative races that are competitive where the Democratic candidate needs a boost in order to win. Right. And we coordinate directly with those campaigns. So the, cor- the campaigns tell us exactly what they want and need. And then we match each one of our teams with a campaign. And so, for example, last year, our team in San Francisco was matched with two specific races in Virginia. They had Elizabeth Guzman and Lee Carter. And they fundraised for those candidates. They sent postcards. They made phone calls. They sent text messages. We even had dozens of people travel to Virginia to canvas and knock on doors for their candidates. So we have a really focused strategy, which is that we select these very strategic uh, races that are competitive. These are not easy races to win. They're competitive. The candidate needs help. And then we channel this volunteer support. And and this goes back to the idea of how in California, you know, there's so many Democrats. And, you know, I live in a very deep blue district. I don't need to canvas for my congresswoman. She's going to win with 80% of the vote. But I could do something for someone, and I want to do something for someone where it's going to make a difference. And that's what Sister District does, is we provide these, we do all the vetting. We identify the candidates, we vet them, we curate the volunteer actions, and then we give them to people who want to do something. And when they do it, they know that this is just what the campaign needs. Sure. And so in Virginia, we supported um, 14 candidates and 13 of our 14 candidates won. And of course that 14th candidate was Shelly Simons who lost. And she was the one who lost by a coin flip. flip, Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was remarkable. And, um, we're so grateful to our candidates who were wonderful by the way. And I, as a little bit of an aside, I'm believing more and more that the quality of the candidate is the number one thing that determines whether somebody wins. I mean, Danica Rome, the first transgender woman to go to the House of Delegates in Virginia, she was competing against a 24-year Republican incumbent who was so homophobic, he would not debate her and he would not even call her a her. He repeatedly referred, misgendered her in his language. He was he was actually nicknamed Bigot Bob. I mean, this is, you couldn't make this up. And Danica Rome really stuck to the issue. She didn't take the bait there. Exactly. And so the, the Danica wasn't running on an anti-Trump or, you know, pro-LGBTQ specifically platform. All she wanted to talk about was traffic. And that is what we need to be doing. The people who are voting, especially in these local and state elections, they want to know how is their kid's school going to improve? How is their commute going to get better? How is that, you know, power plant that's polluting the air? What are we going to do about that? That's what they want to hear about. And that's what our candidates did so well. And that cycles back to your the, the point that, that we began with, which is that these state level elections are really the ones that affect our daily lives. So right. let's talk right. about what you did here in the Washington Senate race, because as everybody listening knows, we had a special election in the 45th and Monka Dingra won and helped the Democrats retake the Senate and therefore flip the entire state blue. So tell us 
a little bit about your work here. Yeah, th- you know, this was so exciting. And this is the, the exact type of race that we look at where with just one victory, we can win not just the seat, but we can flip the chamber and turn Washington into a trifecta state. I mean, talk about getting an amazing bang for your buck. Mm. Monka was also a great candidate. I will say that over and over. It goes back to having a great candidate who the people believe in and they want to elect and they believe she's going to work on the issues that they care about. Um, It was an incredibly exciting uh, opportunity for us to be working in Washington and to get this wonderful woman elected. And now to see um, that when they went into session in January, they have already made progress on all this legislation on the environment and voting rights that had stalled because they weren't able to get it through the Republican Senate. I mean, this this is the change that is just so amazing for me to think about that with by winning that one race, the people in Washington now are going to start having uh, more protections, more freedoms and better access to things that the Republicans just wouldn't do. You know, uh, one of the issues that is coming up and actually is starting to change a little bit is the the, the issue around guns and uh, we just had a, a bump stock ban go through both houses, and it looks like it's going to make it to Governor Inslee's desk. But I, I want to just ask you in closing here, you know, the GOP and the Tea Party used the specter of Obamacare so effectively uh, during Obama's term in office to take over state houses. That was the time when they really made their biggest inroads uh, at the state capitol level. Um And I'm wondering now with the reaction to the school shooting in Parkland, which is so different with the activism being driven by the Stoneman Douglas students, people's attitudes on gun safety are beginning to shift. And most of the victories that we have seen on gun safety have been at the state level. And I'm going to ask you to just speculate here. I'm curious if you feel that this is an issue that is animating people on the Democratic side to begin taking some of these state houses back. I, I certainly think that it is for some people. Um, you know, I've read uh, there's a number of states that have been taking action in response to the Florida shooting, which is, seems miraculous given how many shootings we've had where nobody's taken any action. Yeah. But but somehow it's different now. And it's absolutely true that the states can take action where the federal government, you know, not that they can't, they just won't. That That's part of the reason why it's so so important. I mean, I think this is an issue that will galvanize a lot of people. It's really hard to say you hear all sorts of different polls and, and statistics about what people feel about guns. It seems that people in this country overwhelmingly are in favor of um, reasonable restrictions like background checks or um, raising the age limit to 21. You know, these are things that are not going to infringe on the second amendment and seem very reasonable to reasonable people. So I can see that it's definitely uh, there's that there's potential that this is something that could get people to the polls. On the other hand, you know, the election isn't until November and it's February and, you know, the news cycle goes. And so we'll see where we are in a few months. But um, but certainly this is one of those issues that would will at least galvanize a portion of the population. Um, and this in combination with with a lot of other things that are going on, whether it's DACA or the tax bill or, or health care or whatever, um, you hope that this motivates people to get to the polls and and that their vote really matters on this stuff. Well, if people are liking what they're hearing about Sister District and would like to get involved, uh, where can they learn more? Uh, and, and in what capacity can they volunteer? Yes, uh, please go to our website, which is sisterdistrict.com. And there's a little button you can click to join. And that's where you enter your email and your zip code. And then you'll get an email from us welcoming you to the organization and also putting you in your local team so you'll be connected with the team of folks where you live. And we have a very robust team in Washington, so uh, always always love to have more people there. And then once you're in your local team, uh, this is actually kind of an exciting time because uh, in March, within the next few weeks, we'll be announcing our first round of races for 2018. 
uh, we work on a little bit of a schedule where uh, we can't announce until there certain filing deadlines pass. Sure. But we hope that in March we're going to have our first wave of candidates. So all of our team should have at least one candidate to start fundraising for. And then there will be opportunities for phone banking and postcards and text banking and even canvassing as the months go by. Um, so this is a really exciting time to get involved and to join in. Um, because we're we're gearing up for the year. Yeah, it, it's incredibly exciting, and we're obviously uh, hoping for and working toward a, a big blue wave in 2018. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so Rita Bosworth, thank you for all the work that you do, and uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. This is my pleasure. So last week, we were joined on the show by Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. And now this week, we are tracking what's happening on the issue of gun violence prevention here at the local and state level. And so we've invited on Laura Latta. She is chapter co-leader for Moms Demand Action Washington. Laura Latta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So you have been a part of Moms Demand Action Washington since 2015. uh, And recently, your chapter, along with its various groups, have seen a huge spike in numbers uh, following the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, for, I I think, reasons that are very clear at this point. Um, Give us an idea of what sort of increase in numbers you've seen over the last few weeks. Sure. So um, we normally, our groups, we have 11 groups in Washington and we have monthly meetings and different action events that they take. And a typical meeting, depending on the size of the group, would be anywhere from 10 to maybe um, 25 or 30 people would come. And overnight after the terrible events at Parkland, we saw the RSVP numbers for the events that we already had in our system um, just go up and up and up. And we were just watching them go from 30 to 50 to 100 Mm. to 300. And we just had an event um, in Kirkland, Washington on Sunday. That group has been a smaller group. It's our east side group. They're Membership is around 25. Their last meeting had 11 volunteers, and we just hosted 350 volunteers, most of them brand new at the Kirkland Middle School. That is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually want to talk about that meeting in detail in just a second. Um, Yeah, I count over 4,200 people on the Facebook uh, page, and you have seen requests to start 16 new groups in different areas across the state, right? Yes, all over the state. It's been um, really overwhelming because we have had people reach out to us. You know, we're volunteer-led organizations, so everything we do is done by volunteers, and we're trying to respond as quickly as we can to their requests, but they are coming from Monroe and Richmond, TWISP, Lake Stevens, um, places where our lawmakers typically tell us that the policies that we support are out of step with their constituents. And yet people are clamoring in all of these places all over the state to not only work with us, but to actually form groups in their area because they see the support um, in their community. We just launched a brand new group in Bellingham. It's the Whatcom County group and 70 people showed up to their first meeting without us really doing anything to recruit for that meeting. We just put up the event on our Facebook page. And you mentioned that a lot of these groups that are emerging are from I guess we'd call them red state areas where you would imagine that gun ownership is high. What are some of the people telling you? Have you have you contact or been in contact with, with some of the people who are reaching out to start these groups? And what specifically are they saying about the sort of the environment around guns in their in their areas and how they would like to see that change? Sure. I mean, a lot of what we are hearing from folks in these areas is that um, they're afraid um, for their kids to go to school and they don't believe that it has to be this way 
but they do know that there's a lot of support around gun rights in their community. And so they have maybe been wanting to speak out on this issue, but been worried about doing that. And the events at Parkland have um, been for a lot of these folks, what most of us in this movement have had at one point or another, we call the enough is enough moment. It's that moment where you see what's happening in front of you and you're not just against it, but you're you're done yeah. <laughs> putting up with it. Yeah. And, um, and so what we hear is I'm nervous about starting this, but I actually think that, you know, in my mom's group or at my church or at the school, a lot of us moms are talking about this and the dads are talking about it and the teachers are talking about it and we're ready to go. You yourself are a mother of two and you had a different precipitating moment for getting involved. Uh, tell us about that. Sure. So I, I, you know, I started paying attention to the issue of gun violence prevention after the Newtown school shooting, and I didn't get involved right away. I think I thought, well, obviously our lawmakers will do something about this. Yeah, you know? I think we all did. Um, yeah. And they didn't. And so I continued watching the issue and my kids were really young and I just felt all these barriers to getting involved. And then, um, in the summer of 2015, there were a number of shootings that summer, and one of them was at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the news reports coming out of that story just really were hitting home for me. And there was this one particular detail that I read that there was a young girl who survived the shooting because she pretended to be dead. Sorry, I get a little emotional talking about this. And um, she was the age of my daughter at the time. And I remember just looking at my four-year-old and thinking, if I keep doing nothing, then I say it's okay for four-year-olds to have to pretend to be dead to, to survive a shooting. And... I'm, I know that's morbid. I don't know if that is really what you want to hear on the radio show, but that was just the moment where I thought, this is just not okay with me. It's just not okay with me. And so I jumped on the Moms Demand Action Facebook page and I said, I've been lurking here for a while and I've never done anything and I'm ready and please show me where to show up. Just show me where to show up. And, um, They did. The volunteers brought me into the fold and showed me how they do this work to, you know, one one action after another to try to move the needle on gun violence and um, haven't looked back (laughs) since then. Yeah. And here it is two and a half years later. And now you're a co-lead for a a state chapter. Uh, It it happens fast. Um, But, you know, I I also actually want to thank you for sharing your feelings about Newtown. Um, I, I think we all share that sadness and you really did something about it. So uh, thank you. So let's do talk about the meeting that was held on the East side on Sunday, because as you say, uh, over 350 people showed up, um, which was just comparatively speaking, overwhelming. Um, Mm -hmm. State Senator Monica Dingra showed up to speak. Uh, Give us an idea of what she had to say. So, you know, Monka is a gun sense champion. She's always outspoken on gun violence prevention. And one of the reasons that we appreciate that is that many of our lawmakers are, you know, as we like to say, with us in spirit, but they don't want to bring this issue front and center. Mm. And um, Senator Dingra has always been willing to put this issue front and center. Her background is as a prosecutor. And I think she brings that um career of dealing with gun violence from that aspect to her work as a senator. And so she talked about on Sunday, what I've heard her talk passionately about before is that this is just not acceptable. We just don't have to live this way. Our kids shouldn't have to be thinking about gun violence at school. And then she talked about some of the bills that have moved through the Washington state legislature this session. Um, And two of them were bills that Moms Demand Action worked hard to help support. Um, One is a ban on bump stocks, which is a trigger modification device that makes a semi-automatic weapon function more like a fully automatic weapon. And then the the other policy that has now passed the House and Senate and is waiting for confirmation by the Senate is um, a voluntary waiver bill that allows 
someone who knows that they may be at risk of self-harm um, to hopefully in a moment of clarity, put themselves on the prohibited purchaser list so that if things take a turn for the worse, they won't be able to go buy a gun and use it um, on themselves or someone else. And that that has also passed, um, is making its way through yeah. the legislature. So she talked about both those bills and then also um, a few other things that moved or didn't move, just kind of an update. Yeah, both of those bills that you mentioned are expected to land on the governor's desk, which is very good news. And ideally, it will be the start of a movement toward more sensible gun legislation. Um, Yes. So for people who are looking to get involved here in Washington, I know that there are some events coming up that they can uh, attend to see what this is all about. How can people find out more? Um, so one really easy way to get in touch with us is to text events, E-V-E-N-T-S, to 64433, um, or they can also just visit the Moms Demand Action Facebook page and go to our events page, and you can actually search by zip code to find an event that is closest to you. All right, perfect. We'll make sure that we have that information up on the SoundCloud page and also available at indivisiblepodcast.org. Laura Latta, thank you for the great work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing with us uh, everything that you've shared with us today. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. And we will close this week with some words on gun violence from two Tacoma area students. Between January 1st and February 18th, there have been 34 classified mass shootings across the U.S. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, being the most fatal, with 17 dead and 15 more injured. Something has to be done. Our country is divided and children are paying for it with their lives. Guns don't kill people, but there are guns for made for killing people. People who want to kill shouldn't have access to the perfect tool to get the job done. I am a 17-year-old middle-class girl. I'm white. I've lived in Hilltop Tacoma most of my life, and I'm surrounded by family, friends, and neighbors who love and support me. It would be easy to write me off as having no idea what I'm talking about, but I do. I know for a fact that as a 17-year-old, I don't want my life to end here. I have places to go, things to do, as did all the people in the high school Florida shooting. I also know that whether you're from suburban Tacoma, inner city Seattle, or rural Eastern Washington, we all bleed out just as fast. Guns don't care about circumstance. Death doesn't care who you are. It's up to us not only to send thoughts and prayers, but to take action and take responsibility for ourselves, our loved ones, and our country. What happened in Florida shouldn't happen to anyone anywhere. Both President Trump and the NRA want to arm teachers in schools. What we should be doing is implementing stronger gun control that will keep guns away from our schools. If one of my teachers had a gun, I would feel less safe, especially since they would not be highly trained. In Florida, a trained police officer was on campus during the shooting and did nothing to help. How can a teacher be trusted with a gun if a highly trained police officer can't be? I think it's great that my generation is rising up and I think we can make a difference. We just heard from Ava and Rita, both of whom live in Tacoma. That piece was put together by John Hargis. Thank you, John. In conjunction with Indivisible Tacoma and Tahoma Unitarian Universalist Congregation. Oh, and before we go, I will mention a last bit of news. Fifth LD House member Jay Rodney has just announced that he will not be seeking re-election this fall. You may recognize that name as Rodney was one of the more outspoken House members who voted against the bump stock ban in the House. Republican Chad Megan Dons is officially in to run in his stead, and Megan Dons is the third highest recipient of NRA money in the state. Bill Ramos is the Democratic candidate for this seat, and per our discussion with Rita Bosworth of Sister District, even if you don't live in the 5th, well, you can clearly see the stakes here. You can donate to or volunteer with the Ramos campaign. Just go to voteramos.org. 
And that'll do it for this week's show. All of the links that I talked about today can be found on the SoundCloud page as well as at indivisiblepodcast.org. If you have not done so already, please do subscribe to get the show delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, David Frum, Rita Bosworth, and Laura Latta. My special thanks goes to Liz Schwegler and John Hargis. And as always, my thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.